Welcome to another episode in the Search for Racial Equity series, a global forum offering an in-depth study and dialogue of racial equity and justice. We amplify the most authentic and powerful voices of our time in the racial justice movement while using our global platform to create safe spaces for the most important and timely discussions. As the world continues to fight for racial justice, many of us wonder the same thing. How can we make a real, lasting difference? Meaningful change often begins with meaningful conversation. To contribute to that dialogue and our commitment to racial equity and inclusion, Google has launched a weekly series on our Talks at Google YouTube channel and here in podcast form that amplifies some of the most authentic and influential voices of our time and this global movement. The Search for Racial Equity series hosts authentic, open discussions that reckon with the structural and systemic racism Black people have experienced over generations. To find the video of this talk and all others from the series, please visit g.co slash talks at Google slash racial equity. This episode features Professor Ibram X. Kendi, who is one of America's foremost historians and leading anti-racist voices. He has spent his career driving racial research, research-based policy innovation, educational and advocacy campaigns, and narrative change initiatives. Professor Kendi recently published the books, How to Be Anti-Racist and Anti-Racist Baby, to educate people on how to join the fight against racism. In both of these books, he explains it's not enough to be not racist. He argues that to end racial disparities, it takes anti-racism, actively standing against racism and replacing racist policies with policies that promote equality. For more information about Professor Kendi and his books, please visit IbramXKendi.com. Welcome to the next episode of the Talks at Google Search for Racial Equity series. My name is Cherise Torres, and I am the Global Director of Inclusion at Google, and I am thrilled to be in conversation today with Professor Ibram X. Kendi. Professor Kendi is one of America's foremost historians and leading anti-racist voices. He's a National Book Award winning and number one New York Times bestselling author, the Andrew W. Mellon Professor in the Humanities and founding director of the Boston University Center for Anti-Racist Research, a contributing writer at The Atlantic, and a CBS News correspondent. And in this fall, Professor Kendi will become the Francis B. Cashin Fellow at the Radcliffe Institute for the Advanced Study at Harvard University. Professor Kendi is the author of The Black Campus Movement, which won the W.E.B. Du Bois Book Prize, and Stamped from the Beginning, The Definitive History of Racist Ideas in America, which won the National Book Award for Nonfiction in 2016. His third book, How to Be an Anti-Racist, was a number one New York Times bestseller and made several best books of 2019 lists. His much anticipated fourth book with Jason Reynolds, Stamped, Racism, Anti-Racism and You, was a number one on the New York Times bestseller list. And his first board book, Anti-Racist Baby, was published just last month and was a number one indie bestseller. Professor Kendi, thank you so much for being here today. Oh, you're welcome. I'm, I'm excited to, to be in conversation with you. Absolutely. So let's just jump right in. In your book, How to Be an Anti-Racist, you use your personal experiences to introduce readers to anti-racism. Can you please tell us a bit of your story and how it led to the work that you do today? Sure. So, I mean, you know, I was, I came of age in, in the 1990s. And if there was really ever a period when Black youth 
were considered the problem, were considered a menace to society, were considered the American racial problem, were considered super predators. You know, it was it was the 1990s. And so, you know, as a black youngster, I was constantly told that there was something wrong with 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 black young people. And eventually I started consuming and internalizing those those ideas and and eventually I started believing that there was something wrong with, with black people. And, and so really my journey is a journey from overcoming those anti-black racist ideas to ultimately realizing there's nothing wrong with black people and there's, there's everything wrong with the racist policies that are ensnaring black people. And, and so that journey has really been, been a journey to be anti-racist, uh, a journey to, to realize that the problem is is power and policy and, and, and not people. And I sort of share that journey, you know, in, in how to be an anti-racist. Mm, fantastic. Uh, so for those who have not yet read your book, can you please explain the difference between not being racist and actually being anti-racist? Sure. So typically people say, I am not racist when someone challenges something that they said or did uh, is being racist. And by contrast, to be anti-racist is to have the willingness to admit and acknowledge and even recognize the times in which we as individuals are being racist and certainly the ways in which our society is racist. And so for me, the heartbeat of racism is denial. And the sound of that mm. denial is I'm not racist. While, while the heartbeat of Anti-racism is, is confession and, and, and the ability to say, yes, indeed, I was being racist. Yes, indeed, I'm going to transform myself to be anti-racist. Yes, indeed, that idea that there's something wrong with Latinx people or Native people is a racist idea. Yes, indeed, those policies leading to Black people disproportionately dying of police violence are racist policies. And I'm going to stop saying those ideas and and supporting those policies. And instead, I'm going to support ideas that say there's nothing wrong with any racial group and they're equals. And, and I'm going to support policies that reduce inequity and injustice. Mm. That's really powerful and an important difference, right? Because I feel like so many times what we hear when we're trying to call in others or make them aware of the problematic nature of some of their comments, the knee-jerk reaction is, but I'm not a racist. Mm -hmm. So to really have that language, I think is really important for everyone as we dig deeper into issues of racial equity. Yeah. I, th I think so. And, and, and I, I think it, it is it's critically important for people to also recognize that racist and anti-racist are descriptive terms, mm -hmm. meaning they describe what a person is being in any given moment as opposed to who a person is. Mm -hmm. and, and the reason why that's critical is because most Americans seemingly hold both racist and anti-racist ideas depending on their racial group, depending on the subject, depending on the sector. And, and so if you are an American who believes that there's something wrong with Latinx people, but you don't necessarily believe there's something wrong with Native people. When you're saying there's something wrong with, with, with Latinx people, you're being racist. When you're saying there's nothing wrong with Native people, 
And, 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 and there's everything wrong with the policies, the racist policies that are harming Native people. Um, you're being anti-racist. And, and we have to recognize the complexity of humans. And we have to recognize that people have the capacity to change. And we have to recognize that when we are expressing racist ideas, we're being racist. But in the very next moment, we can confess and recognize and change those ideas and be anti-racist. Yeah, I think that's really important. I feel like it reminds me of Brene Brown. And I know you recently did a podcast with her on her Unlocking Us podcast, where she talks about the difference between guilt and shame. And guilt is related to something I've done. Shame is related to who I am. And the way you describe this, anti-racism or, or racist behavior is related to something you've done, a, an approach you've espoused, rather than who you are. We can change our behavior to be anti-racist. Exactly. And, 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 and being anti-racist, and, and even the term anti-racist, like the term racist, these are verbs. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. this is about what you're doing. This is about what you're being. Um, this isn't a sort of, uh, this isn't about what's in someone's bones or what's in someone's heart. This is what's in someone's words and what's in, what's in someone's actions. Mm. That's incredible. So moving into having these conversations. So at Google, we center everything that we do in our values or something we call the three respects, respect the user, respect the opportunity and respect each other. And as you've alluded to in this conversation, respect is really critically important in conversations about race. And oftentimes these conversations can be impeded because they make people uncomfortable. These aren't easy things to talk about. So as someone whose work is centered around race, what would you say about how we can find ways to navigate that discomfort? Sure, so my wife, uh, Sadiqa, is a pediatric ER doctor. And so in other words, she works in the emergency room of a children's hospital. In other words, parents who are scared to death bring their children because they think there's something could be wrong with them. Mm -hmm. And and it is on her to indeed tell them when to indeed diagnose that child, knowing that it's going to hurt the child, knowing that it's going to hurt the parents to hear that the child has some sort of difficult illness or um, that something is seriously wrong. And, 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 and physicians, um, particularly ER, peds, ER docs are taught to be extremely direct and mm -hmm. open with the parent, to not beat around the bush, to tell the parent exactly what's going on with their child, knowing that obviously it's going to hurt. Yes. But when that parent or even like when I was sort of diagnosed with, with cancer, I didn't think someone was telling me I had cancer because they were trying to hurt me. Mm. I thought that they were diagnosing me because they wanted to help me. And so I think it's critically important for people to recognize, especially when people who are skilled and who study and are experts, and it's their expertise to understand and diagnose racism, that when they're diagnosed with, with being anti with being racist, that the effort is to help them. And they should respond in the same way that they respond when they are diagnosed with a serious illness, which is, you know what? You're trying to help me. It hurts like hell mm. for you to tell me that, 
but I know you're trying to help me. And I know the next thing we need to talk about is treatment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You talked, I've heard you in other interviews say it's like growing up in a racist society or a society with racist tendency is like being caught in a rainstorm and someone suddenly brings you an umbrella and tells you here, take this so that you don't continue to get wet. And not only did you not realize you were wet because it's all you've ever known, sometimes you can question even taking the help because it changes the the, the norm that you've always known. I don't think I'm explaining this quite as eloquently as you have. No, I mean, I think you explained it very well. Uh, I mean, it's, I guess to add to that, it's the rain itself or the, the, the sort of, the rain of racist ideas have taught you to believe that you're you're dry, <laughs> and and so when somebody then comes and 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 brings you an umbrella, you don't think there's any problem because you've been taught to look out at this society and 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 to believe that your racist ideas about what's wrong with a particular racial group are based in science, are based in logic, are the norm, or truth, or reality, um, and. And, and then to thereby deny that those ideas are indeed racist. And, and, and so I think that that's really what it is for, for you know, we're, we're, I'm trying to, to get people to, to, to realize that racist ideas are, are raining on their head and they're wet and they're tripping and falling. And more importantly, they're tripping and, and hitting other people. Hmm. Yeah. So you've written at length, speaking of which, tripping and falling while they're getting wet and they still think that they're dry, you've written at length about how some people are in denial and unable to see either their own racist behavior or the racist policies that create inequity. You've written denial is the heartbeat of racism. Why is denial so prevalent and enduring? And how does this denial contribute to the status quo? So when, um, during the transatlantic slave trade, those who were justifying the slave trade in the highest echelons of of Western European society were claiming that people, that the policies were not racist. And indeed, Black people were being civilized by being taken out of these barbaric places and, and really brought to civilization. During the enslavement era, slaveholders were denying that their policies were racist, that their policies were the problem, and were instead saying that indeed black people are where God intended them to be. They're the cursed descendants of Ham that's cursed forever into enslavement, or they are where nature intended them to be. They are by nature a servile people. And, and so therefore my policies are not racist, or that you know I'm following US law. Um, mm-hmm. And, and then, of course, Jim Crow emerged. And Jim Crow segregationists were saying that, oh, it's everything is perfectly separate but equal down here. <laughs> you know, we're following the law. Uh, you know, there's, there's no there, there. There's no racism here. Um, we are separate but equal. There's no problem. And if anything, those civil rights uh, outside agitators are creating a problem between the, the races who are certainly getting along. And that lynching, you know, there's there's nothing wrong with lynching and everything wrong with the people who are being lynched for what they're doing. Uh, and then, you know, that has continued 
right, to this day in which every policy is justified as being not racist and every idea is justified as being not racist. And so if we can't even identify policies as racist, then that's essentially like someone having an illness and, and refusing to identify that they're sick. How will they ever be able to get better? Going back to your, your point around racist policy and the, the impact of that, um, maybe even unintended consequences at times, but the impact of policy to create inequity. I know that you've worked extensively looking at racial disparities in COVID, both from diagnosis, morbidity or death rates, and the, the shift in how the conversation went around the impact of COVID-19 on the Black community. Can you talk a bit about that and how the, the definition of, or almost blaming the victim, if you will, came into play related to race? Sure. So in mid-March, um, Pew Research Center did a survey of um, Americans, and they found that Black uh, Americans were twice as likely than were, were actually two times more likely than white Americans to view to be taking coronavirus or the coronavirus very very seriously. We're we're much more likely, and even Latinx people are much more likely than white people to be, for instance, buying perishables so that they can socially distance. Um, at the same time, Americans were class were saying that um, that COVID-19 was the great equalizer because in mid-March, there was no racial data. Um, by mid-April, it was a national story that there were racial disparities, that Black people were dying at disproportionate rates. And by, by mid-April, you had people saying, well, Black people are dying at disproportionate rates because they're not taking the coronavirus as seriously as white people. They're not socially distancing as much as white people. They're, they're basically irresponsible yet again with their health. Studies had already proven that that was not the case, right? Mm -hmm. And it really took for white people demonstrating all over this country to reopen states for people to realize that actually, it, actually black people were not the ones who were not taking this virus seriously. So there must be something else. And no, so then it switched to, well, Black people are dying at disproportionate rates because Black people have more pre-existing conditions. And then either people left it at that or they then said that Black people have more pre-existing conditions because they don't take care of themselves. They don't value their health. You know, they eat that garbage soul food as if, you know, white people don't gather together and eat hamburgers and hot dogs. Americans in general don't eat well, no matter their race, right? Um, and, and so... You know, and so it was this, there's something wrong with Black people and their culture and the way they live and the way they, they are that's leading to their pre-existing conditions and their behavior. And so then Black people started hearing lectures about how they need to sort of take more seriously their health so they have less uh, pre-existing conditions. All the while, what was even more predictive than pre-existing conditions was employment status. That Black and brown people were less likely to be able to work from home that was then leading to them being infected and obviously killed at higher rates. That it, all the while, it, another thing that was more predictive than, than pre-existing conditions was black people having less access to both medical insurance and high quality care, mm -hmm. which was causing them to 
present with more advanced stages of COVID-19, which then, you know, anybody who prevents, no matter the race of any disease, they're, they're less likely to, of course, survive it. That, that Black people, another greater uh, predictor of, 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 of Black uh, disproportionate infection and death rates was the air and water quality of one's neighborhoods, which obviously was not only leading to pre-existing conditions, but also in places like Detroit, where residents were told, okay, you need to wash your hands. Well, what if I don't have running water? <laughs> or, or what if I don't feel comfortable in Flint, Michigan, you know, washing my hands, right? And, 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 and so, you know, all the while, it was racist policies that was behind these disparities and, but still, to this day, it seems like most Americans are, are just simply chalking it up to either Black irresponsibility or, or pre-existing conditions. I think a similar trend and, and data-based racial disparity, you talk about the importance of data in analyzing policies and disparity, is conversations that are had around crime rates and the generalizations that are made around Black neighborhoods or predominantly Black neighborhoods and high crime rates. Can you talk a bit about that connection? Sure. So, I mean, one of the most dangerous racist ideas is the, is the idea of the dangerous Black neighborhood with those dangerous Black people. And obviously, we, we, we can understand how and why that's so dangerous, because if, if police officers are raised in, Ameri in an America where they're taught, like the rest of us, to believe, that black people um, are more dangerous, that even when black people are unarmed, they're armed through their blackness, then obviously we can we can we know the the, the effects of that. Um, but what people don't understand is, is people just assume, and if people have been taught to believe that the that neighborhoods with, with high, higher levels of violent crime. Um, that that have a larger number of black people, people have been led to believe that it's the blackness of the people that is leading to that violent crime. And 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 if that was indeed the case, then black upper income neighborhoods would have the same levels of violent crime as the most impoverished black neighborhoods, but they don't. Mm. And so I don't understand how people assess that is the blackness of the people that is behind the levels of violent crime. When, if that was again the case, then all black neighborhoods, no matter the levels of poverty, no matter the levels of unemployment, no, no matter the wealth would have the same levels of violent crime. And, mm -hmm. and so what that means is actually what we should be seeing is dangerous unemployed neighborhoods, dangerous, impoverished neighborhoods, which then changes the calculation. Because then we're not going to say, oh, we need police in order to, to handle that crime. What we're going to say is we need jobs. <laughs> we need resources. We need higher paying jobs. And those things can fight violent crime better than any police officer. I want to dig a little deeper into your work around racial data. And you always say that racial data plays a critical role when it comes to identifying disparities. But as you've mentioned in a few of your examples here, racial data also has a long history of being used to claim black people are inferior and blaming them for their circumstances. How can we make sure that racial data is not used 
to stigmatize people. And not just for black people, as you mentioned, this is Latinx communities, this is Native American communities, the difference between a race-based um, challenge and an income or poverty-based challenge. How do we make sure that data is not being used to further stigmatize? So first, um, I think it's critically important for us to just stand on the anti-racist position that if there's a racial disparity that's shown via racial data, then there must be something wrong with policy as opposed to people. And so then our job, when the data shows that disparity, is to figure out what policies are causing this disparity and to not start to think, okay, what's wrong with those Latinx or black people? If we can just take the position that has been proven over 600 years, they've been, people have been trying to prove that there's something inferior about people of color and, and, and still that has yet to be proven. But if we take the position that there's nothing wrong with any racial group, then we can then use that data for how we should be using it. Is It's a window into a policy problem that we need to investigate. But I also think that we, we then have racial disparities and then people make the case, okay, there must be an economic factor to that racial disparity. And, um, and because Americans don't want to confront racism. And the issue is that this is very simple. If you have a economic inequality, mm-hmm then there's a racial fact, I'm sure to say there's an economic factor or policies behind that economic inequality. If you have a a gender inequity, then there are gender-based policies behind those gender inequities. If you have a racial disparity, then there are racist policies, Mm -hmm. racial policies behind that inequity. Now, if you're talking about disparities between white elites and the black poor, then it's probably a combination or an intersection of both economic and racial policies. If you're talking about disparities between white men and black women, then you're talking about the intersection of racist and sexist policies. This does not have to be that difficult, Um, Mm -hmm. but oftentimes we make it because we don't want to see the way in which racist policies or their intersection are leading to these disparities. Now, policy seems to be at the core or clearly is the core of a lot of your your, your theory and your approach in talking about anti-racism and the impact of racial inequity due to policy. A lot of times when you talk, when people in general talk about policy, they connect it back to politics with a big P or a small P. And they make an assumption that this is a conservative issue or this is a liberal issue. But I've heard you speak very clearly that this has nothing to do with conservatives or liberals. Policy can cut both ways. Talk to us a bit about that. So I remember giving a talk, was I? I think I was in Gainesville, Florida. Um, And, you know, during the Q and A, a woman who didn't identify herself as a conservative, but she basically stated that, you know, she has a serious problem that this university campus does not allow conservative thinkers to 
to sort of come and you know, instead they provide platforms for these liberal thinkers to come and critique conservatives. And, you know, she indicated and insinuated that I was one of those uh, people. And so my response to her was, well, did you read my book? Mm -hmm. um, because the book was possibly even more critical of liberal thought and liberal thinkers um, and certainly policies, uh, you know, than, than, than those who are sort of conservative. And and it really, and even, so it not only critique conservative thought and liberal thought, but even progressive thought and, and, and radical thinkers that, you know, it, it and, and, and so for me, it, it's not, you know, there are, there's a form of liberal racism, like there's a form of conservative racism. And, and you have liberals who make the case, well, the only conservatives the only, only the conservatives are racist, just as you have conservatives who believe only those liberals are racist, when indeed they're both in certain ways being racist. Hmm. Yeah. So right now, racial justice is top of mind for many people in America and around the world. How can we seize the present moment and translate it into longer term impact? So th about three out of four Americans um, in June, where a poll is saying racism is a big problem. Mm -hmm. And so the way in which we ensure that this translates into long-term change is three out of four Americans also agree on the big solutions that are being proposed to those big problems. Mm -hmm. And I'm already seeing resistance to some of those big solutions among people who claim racism is a big problem. And, and so I, I, that is the next step. You know, certainly it's a critically important step for Americans to no longer be in denial about their own racism, I should say, or the racism of this country. But then they can not create a new normal of denial, a, a new normal of denial in which now I'm going to essentially deny that those big sort of solutions are the solvent. So we know that systemic changes are needed to address racism in America and around the globe. How can individuals help to maintain the momentum we have around the search for racial equity? I think it's critically important for individuals to realize their own power. Individuals have shown that they have the power to demonstrate from the, in the smallest of towns to the largest of cities in the United States and really around the world. But individuals also have the power to join and fund and volunteer at organizations in their local communities, in their states, in, in the nation that is, that is directly challenging racism. They have the power to compel their elected officials to support more radical policy changes that are have the capacity to eliminate inequity in a given field overnight in the next year. Um, and, and we all have that power. And, and I want people to recognize their power and even recognize their expertise and even recognize what they have to give to this larger struggle and certainly give that uh, to this movement. Mm -hmm. Going back to the role of individuals, so often people say, I'm not equipped to have these conversations. Can you give me a top 10 list of what I need to know to be an anti-racist? And any of us who are in this work know that there are no shortcuts here. 
but everyone is on and responsible for their individualized learning journey on this path. What would you say to those who claim, I just don't know enough. Can you give me a shortcut here? It's, it's a long, it's a journey. Um, <laughs> and, and so there isn't really a shortcut. Um, there isn't really even a destination mm. because I think it's critically important for people to almost recognize that to be raised in the United States is to be raised to be racist. And to be raised to be racist is to be raised to almost be addicted to racist ideas. And then at some point you're gonna over, you're gonna recognize your addiction. It's gonna take some time. Obviously, if anyone's addicted to a substance, everyone's telling them they're addicted to that substance, but it takes them a long time to realize that. And then what happens after we recognize we're addicted to that substance? We can't just say, oh, addiction's over. No, it's a daily process. For anyone who's, who is still dealing with an addiction, you know it's a, it's a daily process of self-reflection, of self-control, um, of, of transformation. And, and it's the same thing when it comes to being anti-racist. Speaking of a daily journey and a lifetime journey, your most recent book, Anti-Racist Baby, starts from the literal cradle giving parents tools to help raise anti-racist children. And you also worked, I know, I think earlier this year to make a young adult version of one of your first books stamped for the, the teenage and young adult audience. Uh, walk us through your thoughts on why it's so important to start young talking about anti-racism and continue those conversations through each stage. Because our the youngest of, of people are not colorblind. I mean, you know, it's between three and six months, our, our toddlers are beginning to understand race and see race. By two years old, our, our little ones are consuming racist ideas and determining who to play with based on um, skin colors. Um, and so if we're just imagining that they're colorblind, right? Mm -hmm then we're not protecting them with racist ideas. We're not getting them to see, okay, no, you should play with, you shouldn't say that you really want to play with the lighter kid and, and not the darker kid. You know, you should recognize, you know, the, the, the rainbow that is humanity and, and, and all of its sort of beauty. Um, and, and, you know, often, you know, even in middle school and high school, you, you have young people who are experiencing racism and don't even completely understand it, right? And and so as a result of that, they're typically internalizing um, the messaging, and and it's typically harmful for their own sense of self, or they're becoming conceited, you know, mm -hmm. and cocky, thinking that you know because they're you because white people have more, they are more, and so because they are white, they are more, right? And and so then they grow to believe that, and. Um, just as you have children of color who, who, who start to think that there's something wrong with them. And, and, and I think it's critically important for us to, to train our children that there's nothing wrong with you or right about you because of the color of your skin. And, and I think if the earlier we can teach our kids and ingrain our kids with those perspectives, I think the better. Mm. 
You said another phrase in that answer that we often hear in response to calling in or calling out folks for a, a, a racist comment or racist behavior that I don't see color. What is the what is the problem with that phrase? Is there a problem with that phrase? So I, I think that it is it is important for people to realize that the solution to eliminating racism is not not is not stopping people from identifying racially. Mm -hmm. Because what happens is if we quote don't see color, if we don't identify by race, if you don't see and understand racial uh, differences and even identities, then, then what's gonna happen is we're not going to be able to collect racial data, right? Because you know, nobody's identifying by race. We're certainly not identifying by race. You know, when we check into the hospital with COVID-19, mm -hmm. uh, we're certainly not going to identify by race when, uh, or the, the coroner is not going to identify our race when we presumably die of COVID-19. Mm -hmm. and, and so then what's going to happen? We're not going to be able to see the racial disparities. And then mm -hmm. if we can't see the racial disparities, how can we even begin to see the racist policies and so then we're going to have racial disparities all around us that we can't even see, let alone the causes of those disparities. And so what's going to happen to those disparities and the policy causes? They're going to continue. And, and really, that is the final solution. The final solution is having a world of racial inequity that's harming a certain group of people that nobody can even see, let alone challenge. And so really... The, 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 the idea of no longer identifying by race is present presumably the final step, not the first step mm -hmm. in, in creating an anti-racist world. So as we wrap our conversation today, Professor Kendi, what's your final word for our audience? I think the final word is that, you know, we're living in a, in a critical time, you know, in, in American history mm -hmm. and forevermore, you know, people are going to write about these last few months as a time in which we had an unprecedented amount of, of demonstrations against racism. But then what, what are they going to write for the next chapter? Uh, are they going to write that then we, those demonstrations propelled us as a community and as a nation into eliminating racism racist policies sort of once and for all and, 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 and building towards equity and justice? Or, you know, will we essentially let down um, future generations? And, and basically they'll write that we just demonstrated, we said racism was a big problem, and then we just said it was too big of a problem to solve. And, and then we passed on this problem to another generation, passed on the misery and harm and inequity and injustice to another generation. And then they're gonna look back at us and say that we were in a moment in which we could have transformed things and we didn't seize that moment. And I don't want us, I don't want future generations to say that about us. I want us to be the generation, I want us to be the people that, that ultimately transforms this country. Well, and what a final word that is. So thank you so much for your time today, Professor Kendi. Thank you for all of your work and thank you to your commitment for helping to build the anti-racism muscle in all of us.
Thank you. I'm Melanie Parker. Thank you for joining us for the search for racial equity. Let us march on till victory is won.